On the virtual Bible study tonight, we want to continue with some uh, interesting listener questions. You know, we had some left over from last week, Jacob, in which we had one of our sort of smorgasbord programs. We didn't get to them all, so we carried it some over to this week. We got some follow-ups from last week. We got some new ones this week. Some really interesting questions. You'll want to be here for this important discussion, and we'll get it started coming up next. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is the virtual bible study for december 7th 2017 my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you good to be with you tonight and kyle's behind the controls kyle welcome to the program glad to have you back this week it's good to be here and um, we're glad that you're listening on the other end of the line the way you participate on the program tonight you're going to want to participate the best way is to dial toll-free, 877-381-4567. You can also email questions at collegeview.com. And the quickest way for you to comment is to sign in the chat room with other listeners on the program tonight. We're looking forward to hearing from you. On a pro- oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. We're talking about interesting listener questions. You know, we talked about last week that we didn't get to all the ones that we had scheduled to get to. And we put out a challenge to our listeners, and they stepped up. We said, send us some more questions so we can get a whole program, and they came through for Wait, us. We've got more, we got more questions. Way to so go. We're going we're gonna to do right. that. I really like this kind of program, really? and I think our listeners do, too. And maybe uh, we we'll do three weeks in a row if they step up again. Yeah. yeah all right. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, though, a little uh, bookkeeping uh, information for our listeners. Remember, we've got... Bumper stickers, we'll be glad to send you bumper stickers. Send us uh, an email, questions at collegeview.com, and give us your snail mail address. And something we got to start pushing out between now and the end of the year, we're, every year we print a Bible reading calendar. Well, that's right. And we've got those ready to go. And uh, so if some of our listeners get one every year, they, uh, and so if you've been a, a regular using the Bible reading calendar, we've got it updated for 2018. Or if you'd just like to get started, uh, send us again. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com and just say, send me your Bible reading calendar. You've got to give us your snail mail address. Or we can send you by uh, email. We can send you a PDF uh, document. Or we'll have it up on our website after the first of the year. But uh, a hard copy to keep just tucked right in your Bible is pretty handy. All right. Yep, you'll want a copy of that, so send us an email. For that, and you'll, how about a free bumper sticker with every calendar? Hey, if you send, if you ask for a calendar, we'll send you a bumper sticker. You don't even have to ask for one. Yeah, we're going to make a trade. You give us part of your bumper, your back window, we'll give you the bumper sticker. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, so, again, as you were saying, Jacob, some questions. Let's go Let's go first to, the, to some that were left over from last week, and yep. these are from our buddy Chris uh, in Georgia. And he asked two questions. They're not related, but both are kind of intriguing. Number, the first of his questions was, if a couple is recognized by the state as having a common law marriage, are they considered to be in a scriptural marriage? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everybody's familiar with the idea of common law marriage, and typically what that means is a man and a woman start living together, 
and a lot of state laws. I don't know. I don't even know the state law here in Tennessee where we are. But tip, but a lot of state laws uh, stipulated that if a man and woman have lived together for seven years or some other period of time, then they are considered to be legally married. Um, and I think that's what Chris, uh, Chris's question relates to. But there'd be several things involved in that. First of all, before they could be, he asked, are they scripturally? The state may recognize them as marriage, but Chris asked, are they in a scriptural marriage? Well, in order for it to be a scriptural marriage, they'd have to be eligible marriage partners. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if if one or the other or both of them were not eligible to be married scripturally, then they couldn't be married scripturally no matter how they got to that point. Yeah, that's right. Good point. Uh, so they'd have to be uh, eligible marriage partners. Uh, M.O. But, in the chat room says Tennessee does not have common law marriages. Okay. So there's your answer on that. Yeah, okay. Uh, but in the, a lot of states do. One I don't way or the other, yeah. Yeah, but, but the, the, the point of it is... If it's law, if it, if in a given state there's law that says if you've been living together for seven years, you are now considered married. If that's the law, then I would say they are married. The question is that scriptural would, would have to be determined on whether or not they had a right to be married. But I also would go beyond that to say, okay, let's say that the law in a given state is seven years. For seven years, they're living in open rebellion to God's law. They've been living in fornication for seven years until they reached that point which common law made them legal. And so they certainly have a lot of repenting to do. Sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get what uh, Kent's uh, response was. Uh, Kent sent this in last week, and uh, he sent in some more responses this week. Kent, thank you for your participation on the program. Kent's in Calhoun, Georgia. He says there are several things to consider. Number one, are these individuals qualified by the New Testament to enter into marriage? By qualified, I refer to those who have never been married, those formerly married but now are widowed, or innocent individuals who have divorced or put away former mates because of the sin of fornication. So Kent's agreeing with you. You need to be qualified uh, and uh, and um, uh, eligible for marriage. And number two, he says, even if the state recognizes a common law marriage, that is, individuals living together outside of marriage before the relationship is recognized, recognized by the said state as being a legitimate marriage, such is a sinful condition that needs to be forgiven. Alien sinners need to obey the gospel, and unfaithful brethren need to repent of fornication and be restored to the fellowship of God. And then he says, number three, even when forgiveness is extended, such individuals need to consider their influence on others. Obviously, if the state recognizes their marriage, one could not go through a legal procedure that was already considered legal. However, they could go through a wedding ceremony to demonstrate to society that they now recognize the sacredness of marriage and to demonstrate their respect for the biblical marriage relationship. So, Ken says it would be a good idea to, to, to formalize do, do that. Do something to formalize in their the, commitment to one another. Not that it's not already considered that way, but they need to. They need, it needs to be they're, known. If they're if they're considered legally married, then they are they are legally married in the eyes of the state. However, they got to that point, but they have done a lot of wrong things and been a bad influence on a lot of people, and they need to repent and and take steps to correct their evil influence if possible. So six years and 54 days ago, or 64 days ago, three years, 364 days ago, you were just living together. And the next now, day you're married. Now the next day you're married. Well, your neighbors don't know that you're not just living together anymore. Your yeah. family doesn't know you're not just living together anymore. You need to make it known that we're married. 
And we're going to honor God's law. And we'll repent of the wrongs that we've done leading up to this point. We're going to live like God says from here on out. All right. Good points, Kent. Thank you for those tonight. So I think that's a real interesting one. That's that's absolutely a brand new one that's never been dealt with before on how many uh, 12-plus years of the virtual Bible study. Yeah. So that's that's a new one, Chris. Thanks for that one. We'll give you a free bumper sticker for new questions if you want one. He's got some. Okay, he's got uh, yeah, but, he does. Uh, now, the second question that Chris submitted was this one. This is also rather unique. In Job 1 and 2, we see some sort of heavenly council formed with the sons of God and Satan. You remember the uh, the the opening chapters of the book of Job. Uh, Satan has a conversation with God, it, and it, it even suggests that he is in company with the sons of God as they come before God. That's Job uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And yeah. the Lord said to Satan, and it goes on, there's a conversation between God and, and Satan. And, of course, Satan sort of negotiates to have access to Job, to, to tempt Job, to, to uh, try to ruin Job. Uh, so from that, Chris asks, were the sons of God here angels? He said, I know the phrase sons of God is different places in Scripture, and you have to understand the context to know what the phrase is referring to. For example, in Genesis chapter 6, I do not believe the phrase is referring to spiritual beings. In, jo- in, in Genesis chapter 6, we've dealt with this before in the virtual Bible study, but in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children by them, or to them, the same became mighty men of, of which were of old, men of renown. I'm with Chris. I don't think sons of God. There, there are some people who think that angels had intimate relationships with mortal human women yep. and produced some kind of super race of individuals. Um, I don't think that's. I don't think there's any justification or, or uh, uh, legitimacy to that kind of reasoning. In uh, in chapter four of Genesis, at verse twenty, chapter four, verse twenty six. Right at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. The men who called on the name of the Lord were the sons of God. And what Genesis 6 then is saying, it got so bad in the world that even those who had been identified as servants of God became corrupted by the evil influence of the worldly people around them. And the only righteous person left was Noah and his family. So I think in Genesis 6, the sons of God, not angels, talking about men, uh, who were committed or had been committed to serving God. However, here in in Job chapters 1 and 2, I would be inclined to think that the sons of God here probably are some kind of angelic or heavenly beings. Uh, because this clearly, I mean, if, if it wasn't, then we got we got mortal men in a meeting with God and Satan and Satan and God talking. Of course, Satan and God are spirit beings, not... So I think the context of this is talking about something that went on in the spirit realm, of which we only have sort of glancing knowledge of things that go on in the spirit realm. Uh, But I would think sons of God here would refer to heavenly beings of some sort. Okay. he, he goes on to say, do we have any evidence in Scripture that these councils or meeting, like we read here in, in Job, still take place today? I don't know. Do you, do you have an answer to that, Jacob? 
I don't. Uh, uh, the Bible, if, if it is so, the Bible doesn't reveal it. If they ended, the Bible doesn't reveal it. This is, this is the only snapshot we have of anything like that taking place. And so I would just have to say, I don't, I don't think we have the information to answer that question. Sort of along the lines of what Kent said. Regarding Job 1 and 2, this heavenly scene between God and those classified as sons of God were obviously angels. Indeed, the phrase sons of God do not always refer to angels. The context would be the determining factor. Genesis 6 would not refer to angels in that angels cannot procreate. Now he says, do have such heavenly meetings take place today? He answers it just like you. I don't know. He references Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The references secret things belong to God. And the things that are revealed belong to us, and that we can know what God's revealed to us. And uh, he says he hasn't revealed the answer to that question. Uh, he, uh, Chris says, the Hebrew word Satan here is translated as the Satan or the adversary. Is this Satan or some other being that is an adversary to God? I, I would argue that Job 1, that's Satan. That is our adversary, Satan. Uh, does this mean that he has access to heaven and to God until judgment? Again, I don't know about that. I, uh, can Satan communicate to God presently? I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether they, they, they are able to have communication between them such as they did in Job 1. I just don't know. I don't think we have that information supplied. Yeah, we don't. And if he's talking directly with God or if... He's just banished uh, from heaven completely now. He is still a roaring lion, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and he's seeking whom he may devour. That hasn't changed. His, right. his prerogative like, hasn't like changed. Just like he wanted to destroy Job, he right. wants to destroy us. Same. Too. So, yeah, so yeah, it's uh, you're, we're in a fight, uh, just as Job was. That, yeah. that hasn't changed. The part that we know and the part that's pertinent to us is that uh, he's still trying to get us. Yeah. All right. All right, so great questions, Chris. I really appreciate those questions. I think they're very interesting. And sorry we didn't get to them last week, but we put you at the top of the of the list tonight. All right, we're going to get a break. When we get back, John had some questions about the Lord's Supper last week. He doesn't agree with our answer, uh, but he's got a follow-up answer. Again, uh, challenging our interpretation of Scripture. Uh, this In time, regards to instrumental music, too. Well, and it is time. In, uh, because we talked about that last week. Yeah, in James chapter 5, verse 13. And so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, my name is Mike Johnson. I'm a member here at the College of You Church of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic? Generally, people say this when we say that we must be careful to follow all the commands that God has given us. When we say, God says we must do this, or God doesn't command us to do that, people respond with, the members of the church of Christ are too legalistic. Well, while it may be impossible to know exactly what people mean when they make this accusation, if they are accusing us of being legalistic because we say that we should follow all the instructions that God has given us, then that accusation is correct. But let me ask you this. Which of the commands that God has given us should we ignore? Can we pick and choose which commands we follow, or must we follow them all? Jesus said we have to follow all the commands of God when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We want to call Jesus our Lord, so we try to follow all the commandments that he has given us. We don't in any way think that following God's commands earns our salvation, but we do think it is necessary to be pleasing to Him. Here at the College of You Church of Christ, we're trying to follow every command that God has given us. If, as a result, some people call us legalistic, then so be it. We think it's what God calls being righteous. Here's some quotes worth pondering. 
If you pursue happiness, it will elude you. But if you focus on God, your family, the needs of others, and doing the very best you can, happiness will find you. What you do for yourself will soon be forgotten, but what you do for others will be long remembered. When you are green with envy, you're ripe for trouble. The best way to have the last word is to apologize. After all is said and done, there's usually more said than done. Man, I wish I'd said that. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? And we're back on the program tonight as we look at interesting listener questions, uh, some from last week, and now we're getting into some new ones from this week. And we remind you, this is always uh, an opening for you. We want uh, your questions at any time, questions at collegeu.com, because these are, well, at least one listener, uh, actually five listeners tonight will be interested in hearing the program this way because we're talking about their questions, but we think a lot of folks are interested in other people's questions. Yeah, so participate, send in questions. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on the Virtual Bible Study. All right, and uh, during the break, uh, M.O. said, uh, whoever or are, I think they were clearly some type of spirit being and not physical. That's talking about the can, reference can there in Can we call M.O. Mo? You could, I don't yeah, know. we'll call him Mo. Okay. I know Mo. Okay. I'll call him Mo. Okay. All right. Um, follow up from John. John had some questions last week about Acts 20, verse 7. Yeah. No, his question basically was, and we tried to deal with it, uh, uh, can we be sure that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where, let me read it to you. I think lots of our listeners are very familiar with Acts 20, verse 7. But Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Uh, we use that verse uh, to authorize us to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Yeah. We say it's an approved apostolic example, and we're following the example of Paul when he met with these Christians in Troas to take the Lord's Supper on, on the first day of the week. We also argue that that verse, by implication, teaches that it was an every week occurrence of Christians in the first century to observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Now, do you want to? So he says, uh, my understanding is you do not think there is one chance in a thousand that Paul was meeting with fellow Christians and having a common meal. Personally, I think there is more of a chance that it was a social fellowship than a worship service. You know. I did a little spot checking and some commentaries. This is not just some kind of crazy, quote-unquote, Church of Christ view. Everyone I looked at agreed unanimously that this was take take of the Lord's Supper in Acts 20, verse 7. I didn't read any commentators that said, no, it's not. So it's not just just our interpretation. It's a very common interpretation that's what this was. Okay. That doesn't make it right that other people agree, but I'm just saying it's not, we're not some kind of wackos because we think it's the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and John understood our answer because there was more to his correspondence than we were able to put in this in this excerpt for for our mailing today. But John understood our answer because our uh, and and he he acknowledged our answer, but he didn't agree with it. But the the point we were making last week is if the church came together. Notice it says they came together. This was the church coming together. If they if as the church came together, they ate a common meal. Uh, as the assembled church, then Paul was violating his own instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, which in, wherein he rebuked the Corinthians church for doing that very thing. And so we'd have, we'd have, I think, Paul caught in a case of hypocrisy here, which is not not impossible. Peter played the hypocrite. But in Galatians 2, 
Paul called him out on that hypocrisy. So if, if I think in God's wisdom, he would not have an inspired apostle sin without identifying the sin so we could see it and know it and not be confused by contradictory information. Now, there was there was some fairly heated discussion in the chat room last week about the institutional Lord's Supper on a Thursday night by Jesus and his apostles uh, or disciples. We made the point, and I think that it was maybe misunderstood what we we're saying is Jesus gave the instruction on what to do in the Lord's Supper, but we don't see how the first century Christians followed those instructions until we get to Acts chapter 20, really verse 7. He didn't really tell them when to do it, but Acts 20, verse 7 shows, shows us, us when they did it. Under the participation and, and uh, uh, approval of inspired there were, apostles. There were some comments like, well, we can't follow Jesus' example. Obviously, we can and we should. But that's not what he was setting forth there, in, uh, we believe, when he instituted it during that Passover meal. Um, now, I just had a thought, just a, a logical thought, and John, see what you think about this. Uh, he says, are you sure you do not think that there's one chance in a thousand that Paul was meeting with fellow Christians and having a common meal? Well, let me turn the tables on you, John. Do you do you believe that there's not one chance in a thousand that this was an assembly to participate in the Lord's Supper? In other words, you're saying we'd have to be absolutely positive it wasn't a common meal in order to enforce that it was the Lord's Supper and we should follow that example. But on the other hand, in order to disregard this example, you'd have to say that you're 100% positive that it was a common meal or else you stand the jeopardy of violating the scriptural principles set forth here by apostolic example. So, I mean, I mean the, the argument can go either way. I mean, I, I feel confident that this was an assembly to, to observe the Lord's Supper because actually later in the context, we read about Paul eating a common meal. Um, after he'd raised, you, you know, remember, Eutychus fell out of the window and died. Paul raised him from the dead. Yep. He says, but then he came up again. He broke bread and ate and talked with them a long while, even till the breaking of day and departed. I, I think that Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 11, talks about the eating of common food. After the assembly had disbanded because there was this sort of dramatic event when Eutychus fell out of the window and died and Paul raised him from the dead, the assembly, Paul had continued his speech till midnight, the but the assembly ended when Eutychus fell out of the window. Now, after the assembly has ended, it mentions them eating some food in what I think would have been a common meal sort of uh, environment. Okay. So I think those two things are con- contrasted. But but again, we we f- we feel very confident that this was the Lord's Supper. We're trying to imitate that example. But to disregard the example, you'd have to say you're 100 percent confident that it wasn't the Lord's Supper in, right. in, in verse seven. All right. So, but John wants to leave it there, and uh, and, and but he has another uh, question for us to consider. Okay. So moving on from that, now we we also had some questions about instrumental music last week, and. John says, I would like to hear your thoughts on James 5.13. And that verse says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. From the way the Church of Christ interprets the Bible, by the way, i I, I got to object to that terminology. It's not Church of Christ interpretation. We don't adhere to Church of Christ interpretation. We're just trying to read the Bible and understand it. We're just simple Christians trying to 
make sense of what the Word of God says. Uh, 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 so I, I just got to comment that this is not Church of Christ interpretation. We're, we're not adherence to Church of Christ interpretations. We're just Bible, okay? okay? So he says, but he says, the way you interpret the Bible, then this verse would tell me that if a person is gleeful, happy, cheerful, merry, joyful in spirit, then the following rules would exist. We are required to sing. So that means we cannot remain silent. We must sing psalms and psalms only. This verse only mentions psalms as opposed to Ephesians 5.19, which applies to the whole church. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Ephesians 5.19. But this only mentions psalms. We're forbidden to use secular music, use an instrument. What would you think about that? If you're Mary, you must sing and you must sing only psalms. What do you think about that? Well... Uh, I would argue no. I don't agree with that conclusion at all. In in James chapter 5, verse 13, James is mentioning one reaction that a, a joyful Christian might have, and that is to sing it's psalms. It's not an exclusive. It's not an exclusive thing because in Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We have general authority for rejoicing in the Lord. General authority allows for us to use our judgment about how we're going to to engage in the activity. And so we're left with, we have general authority. Uh, James 15 indicates one way that you might choose to rejoice in the Lord. But there's general authority for rejoicing in the Lord. And so we can rejoice in the Lord by doing things that are in themselves moral and ethical and proper we couldn't do anything immoral. I'm joyful in the Lord, and therefore I'm going to go out and get roaring drunk. No, no, I can't do that. No. But I'm going to. I'm rejoicing in the Lord, and so what I'm going to do is, um, I'm, I'm going to get my family together and give them a big group hug. I can do that. You yeah, know, because we so, see other passages yeah. where Christians were happy, and it doesn't reference singing. Yeah. And yeah. the same way, we have to also put that in with the other things. Is any of you suffering or afflicted? Let him pray. Well, there's other things that you're supposed to do when you're afflicted and suffering other things you can do yeah not just pray that's not the only thing you can do <laughs> exactly. uh, and so it's not it's not exclusive authority so we do think you need to follow the authority john in a way implies here that well that's what it says to do but you don't have to listen to it he, he, he sort of by making the argument implies well you can just ignore the ones the the, the instructions that the scripture give you if, if you don't if, uh, if i couldn't find other authority in the scripture you would for to have for rejoicing and if this was the only place that it ever mentioned that in Scripture, which it obviously isn't, but if it was the only place, then I suppose we would be bound by this specific instruction. Either you do, but we have general authority. Uh, uh, we don't have just specific authority in the realm of rejoicing. We have general authority, and when we have general authority, then we are we are given the liberty to use our discretion within the bounds of what's right, proper, and moral. We have discretion to do what we want to but do. But now, embedded in that general authority is a specific authority, and that's what we referenced, the idea of singing psalms. And again, it shows an exclusive pattern when psalms or spiritual songs are referenced in the if New Testament. Sing there psalms, to be sung. Sing, yeah. Don't play instruments. So that's specific. Yeah. Um, and uh, don't, don't, There's no authority for engaging in psalms with instruments. Because we read about it here and every place else that we read about singing psalms. We don't read about singing and playing. Okay. 
All we right. got a couple of answers from uh, got, got from a, Kent. Yeah. Uh, Kent says, uh, Acts, you, you want to go back to the Lord's Supper? Again? Act, yeah, Acts 20, verse 7 needs to be studied in light of 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 30. The context of Acts 20, verse 7 necessitates that verse 7 is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Why would Paul have tarried an entire week in Troas just to eat a common meal in Acts 20, verse 6? Is what talks about him tarrying. That's a good point, Kent. Yeah. Also, the breaking of bread is accomplished in conjunction with preaching. Such indicates a worship assembly. The issue is not about eating a common meal together. The issue is about the local church collectively assembling together to eat a common meal. Uh, the key thought to, uh, regarding this issue is an aspect of the assembly. First Corinthians 11, verse 20, the implication is that there is no authority to have an assembly to eat a common meal as an assembly. In Acts 20, verse 11, indeed, however, in contrast between verses 11 and seven demonstrates collective church activity, all the Christians assembled together as a unit, and what Paul as an individual where there were was no collective action. Even if other brethren consumed food with Paul, there was no assembly of the church of any kind in this action. We understand this is discussing a link, links and a chain. Um, okay. That's interesting. Uh, I think Ken agrees with us. Uh, you know, if it's if it's a if it's a called assembly of the church, there's not any authority for the eating of common meal, and and so that just to me, I uh, you know, I guess I'm willing to take my stand on what John asked. Do, do you not think there's one chance in a thousand that this was a common social? Media? No, I guess I don't. I guess, but I, again, I want to flip that coin over. John, are you? certain to say that there's not one chance in a thousand that this was the lord's supper because if it was then that's what we're supposed to do and and can you say absolutely and without fear of being wrong that this was that chapter 20 verse 7 of acts is not talking about the lord's supper now kent gets on to the question about james 5 13 insofar as james 5 13 there is no hermeneutical principle that necessitates that we only sing psalms ephesians 5 19 and Colossians 3:16 also authorizes singing of hymns and spiritual songs. The principle addressed in the principles addressed in Ephesians 5:19 and Colossians 3:16 apply to the individual Christian just as much as they do to the collectivity of the local church. The concept of secular music in James 5:19 is not addressed when you look at the verses or at the verse it is discussing religious action of individuals. Secular music does not fit the category of acts of devotion either individually or collectively. When it comes to the usage of religious songs, there is no specific or generic authority for the usage of mechanical instruments of music in or out of the assembly. I agree, you, with, I agree with Ken on all of that. The only quibble that I think we might hear is John was talking about when you're joyful or gleeful, happy. Can you Must you sing and only sing psalms? And I, I think we've dealt with that part, too. Okay. All right. So John, if you've got follow-up, we'd like to hear uh, from you again. Appreciate your, your feedback and uh, listening to the program. We're going to get a break and get this week's bullet point. When we get back, we've got another well another question about instrumental music from Ramona in Texas. And, uh, and a question about, well, if you can't find a church, you think that's straight down the line. What about one that's in your symbol with them? We'll get your thoughts on that right after this week's bullet point. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. The dictionary defines the word justify to mean, quote, to defend or uphold as blameless or right, to declare guiltless, absolve, acquit. 
When it comes to our soul's condition, there are two very different ways to approach the business of justification. The first way is by means of the soul-redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. When we humbly acknowledge our own sinfulness and in true faith obey that we are, quote, justified by his blood and, quote, shall be saved from wrath through him, Romans 5, verse 9. Those who do not find real justification by God's plan often follow another route that we refer to as self-justification. This is not new. Many men, past and present, have made such efforts. Several common tricks are employed when folks try to justify themselves. They will often first ignore the problem. Some seem to think that if they don't acknowledge their wrong, it will somehow disappear, but it never does. Or some try to deny their sin. Their, quote, heart is wax gross, their ears are dull of hearing, Matthew 13, verse 15. The sin remains. Or some people make excuses. When their failures are discovered, they will frequently describe the extenuating circumstances that led to their sinful words or deeds. In reality, an excuse is an admission of fault and does nothing to truly justify the sinner. Or again, some blame others. This approach is as old as the very first sin. Adam blamed Eve, Genesis 3, verse 12, and millions have imitated his fruitless effort to shift blame. Yes, others sin, and sometimes their sins have an impact or influence on us, but such things never justify us to go against God. Or finally, some may actually blame God. Adam tried this too. He was wrong, and so is everyone else who tries this. God has always desired what is best for us, and his laws are designed for our benefit. Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. So we all need justification, but be careful not to be deceived by self-justification. Rather, seek true justification by obedience to God. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name is Preston Jackson. I'm from Valdosta, Georgia, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday night. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. We're back on the Virtual Bible Study, reminding you this program is brought to you by the College Church of Christ. We meet in Columbia, Tennessee. We want you to find out more about us by visiting our website, or we want you to find out more about us by visiting with us. Uh, find out more about where we assemble and the time of our assemblies at uh, the Virtual Bible Study. Dot com. We're talking about listener questions on the program tonight, a question about the Lord's Supper and some more follow-up discussion about that in the chat room. Uh, Luke in the chat room asks, is there a parallel to this as general authority to observe the Lord's Supper with the single example of the first day? The difference there, Luke, is that example is the totality of our information on that. So it is. it, it doesn't say do it one way in one place and do it another way or different day in another place therefore we couldn't conclude any any specific uh, uh you know we couldn't say there's an exclusive pattern but the fact that we have one and only one example of when to take the lord's supper constitutes an exclusive example and therefore that's why we say that 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 limits our authority when when things are specified in such manner that limits our authority to do otherwise that's the only authority we got it's only instruction or uh way that we can know that god approves of what we're doing thank you luke for your question um all right on to ramona ramona from texas sent in she she tried to get in under the wire last week and was disappointed she didn't get in under the wire that's all right but she did this week Uh, thanks ramona and so ramona here's the questions you sent in first If the New Testament forbids the use of musical instruments in the worship service, why are there musical instruments in the book of Revelation? Where is the authorization for the seven churches to use them in this book, but not at their own home churches? Yes, this is an allegory, but why use musical instruments if it is forbidden? A couple of things there. First, yes, musical instruments are mentioned in the book of Revelation, but 
It's not mentioned in chapters two and three, talking about the seven churches of Asia. Right. So it's not. Uh, it's, it's not, not in the. It's the, not in in reference to the seven churches of Asia or or those seven churches using instrumental music. It's not like well, the Church of Laodicea. I'm somewhat against you because you quit playing the harp. No. No. It's, it's, not, not, it's, not, there. it's okay. not in there. Okay. What we do have is angels playing harps in in the Book of Revelation. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, my answer, I don't want to be overly simplistic about that, but my answer would be, we're not angels, we're not in heaven. What angels do in heaven is not authority for what we mortal human beings do on earth. And I'm pretty sure you can't play the harp like an angel. Oh, no, of course not. It's, uh, we have a lot of uh, information about the in Revelation, about the scene in the throne room and just uh, the throne scene and yeah, we're just we're not there. We're not in the presence of God right there, so we're not playing the harps, and that'll be a magnificent scene. But we're not there yet. So yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, Memo says Revelation has them in heaven. Yeah. Okay. So uh, again, I, I don't want to be too simplistic about. It. I mean, I don't, uh, but really, uh, what angels do in heaven isn't authority for what we do on earth, and and so I, that's always been my answer. I, you know, because that that question comes up from time to time when we're talking about instrumental music. I said, well, what, what about angels playing harps in heaven? They do. That's fine. But that's not us. That, that's, just, that's, that's just as simple as... What did uh, first century Christians do? They sang. They were instructed to sing. Yeah. There was no reference to harps in the New Testament worship on earth. Kent's email says, there's no authority in the book of Revelation for the usage of musical, uh, mechanical instruments of music in worship to God. The mentions of instruments is done so in highly symbolic language. Revelation 1 verse 1 talks about things spoken in signs. A symbol cannot symbolize itself. It represents something else. There's no passage that any of the seven churches use mechanical instruments of music in worship to God. The only mention of mechanical instruments of music in the book of Revelation is used regarding that of heaven. Revelation also speaks of four beasts being in heaven as well as a star falling from heaven. The book also refers to prayers of the saints being offered with incense. Obviously, such does not authorize animals, incense, and fallen stars being brought into the worship assembly of the church. Yes, so what Kent's basically saying is that Revelation's uh, uh, very symbolic, lots of figurative language, but it doesn't provide authority for us to use musical instruments of worship to God as humans serving him here on planet Earth. All right. Hope that helps, Ramon. If you got another question or comment about that, send that in. Yeah. All right. Uh, she has a second question okay if you if all you can find are moderate churches of christ to uh, to find a, a church home can you go to the the least moderate one but worship with your heart to god not partaking what you don't believe in is there any perfect church i'll answer the last part first and i'll throw it to that's you, a softball <laughs> question come on there's obviously no perfect churches and then, so anytime we choose to be a member of a local congregation we are identifying with something less than perfect okay so that's 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 easy that's the first one now the question if if you if, you, if all you can find is a moderate church uh can you at least go to the moderate one but and worship god with your heart but not partake in what you don't believe in you know, since uh, Ramona brought up the book of Revelation, uh, let's look at the book of uh, Revelation ver- chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of, in Sardis write, These things say, saith he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Uh, and you have uh, it, it talks about things that they had done, that be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Well, you know, that's a 
bleak picture and a, a bad church. I mean, you can't you couldn't say good things about that church. But he knows what he says in verse four. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So even, even in a church had lots of problems. There lots were lots of problems. There were still people who were being faithful to God. So that's a it's a it's it's a challenge. Here's the key, though. I think. Yep. And and I think Ramona even hinted at it in her question. Can you worship? Not partaking in what you don't believe in. I if if my even this congregation or any congregation you might choose, none are perfect. But if my membership or identification with that local congregation forces me to be participating in things that I conscientiously can't participate in, then I can't be a part of that. Now, for instance. Uh, this, uh, I don't know that this is true here. I, I'm pretty sure it's not. But let's say that I'm going to a congregation, and there's a member there who loves to play the lottery. He's a gambler. And uh, so he's a member there. Can I be a member there? Well, hopefully that guy's going to be taught, instructed. Hopefully he will change over time when he comes to a better understanding of what the Scriptures teach about gambling. But I'm not. I'm not participating. I mean, his his activity, which I think is wrong, does not force me to be a part of that activity. So I, I could be a member of that church, and we'll keep working with that member, and hopefully he's going to repent, and, and that that issue will be corrected. That 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 will be a case of a of a less than perfect church, but we're working on trying to get it better. But but even while we're working on trying to get it better, it doesn't force me to participate in the thing that I think is sinful. Now, on the other hand, if they brought in, we've been talking about instrumental music. They brought in instrumental music. Well, that, I can't worship now because that's going to force me to be singing with musical accompaniment. I think that's sinful. Yeah. I can't pretend. So now I can't be a part of that church because the, the, the thing they're doing that's wrong necessarily requires me to be a part of what's not right. Right. So I think that's the determinant. There are no perfect churches. We're going to have to choose to be a part of a church that's less than perfect. But we cannot choose to be a part of a church that, by virtue of being a member of that church, it forces me to violate my conscience in regard to what I think is right. Violate Ephesians 5, verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So if what I, if me worshiping with the church, Kyle, that's not perfect, which all of us do, but if me being a part of that church forces me to have fellowship with them in their error, uh, I cannot associate and I cannot uh, participate. And no, it's it's. I guess you have to. That's part of going to church. You need to go to these churches, and if you're going to move to a place, you need to visit these churches and find out. Yeah, and dig down, ask a, the hard questions. It's going to be a difficult uh, decision to make. Uh, where where do you draw the line? Let me read what Kent said. He said the word moderate, talking about a moderate church. Would need to be carefully defined. If by moderate one refers to a local con- a local church that it, it that compromises of a few items, but does not compromise all aspects of the New Testament pattern, the answer would be no. You can't participate there. If one cannot locate a sound local church, they need to go out and start one. Many use the moderate to uh, the term moderate to indicate an excluded middle ground to refer to a total situation where a local church will not take a definite stand on anything. In Revelation three fourteen through nineteen, the church at Laodicea could certainly fit this definition of moderate. And the Lord stated, "He 
Indeed, there are no perfect local churches, just like there are no perfect individual Christians. However, while in this life, we will not attain perfection. We must be faithful, Revelation 2, verse 10. All right. Appreciate those Thanks, comments. Yeah. All right. So, uh, good question from Ramona, and uh, well, hopefully that's helpful. Let's go. Let's get our last break, Jacob, and then we got to go quickly to the top of the hour. We've got a couple questions left, one from Billy, one from Josh, and we'll try to cover those when we get back. Dwight says, what if they're one cup? Could I worship with a church that's one cup? Well, I don't think you'd be sinning. I, I actually have done that in the past. More power to you. I don't think you'd be sinning to participate with one cup. Now, if they're going to teach and bind that, as, yeah. you know, I, I, th- then we've got another problem. But it's not a sin to worship using one cup to observe the Lord's Supper. That's not a sin. I could do that. If they just say, you know, if this local congregation just said, you know, we just think it's a better thing to use one cup. We just, we we like it. it it's In our judgment, it seems to be just something good. Then... They could make that determination. There's nothing in the scriptures that say they should or shouldn't use one cup. We we think that I think the scriptures authorize multiple containers for the Lord's Supper. I think we can prove that. But if this local church in their judgment said we want to just use one cup, I'm not sinning by participating with them and taking one cup. There's nothing in the scriptures that would say that's wrong. But if they said if you partake of this one cup with us, then you agree that it's wrong not to have just one cup. Then you'd have to say, oh no, then we got no, more. Not going to do that. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break, and we'll get your uh, back. We're going to get your comments on a couple more questions. Another one about the Lord's Supper. We're on a common theme here tonight, uh, instrumental music and the Lord's Supper. One more about that, and then about uh, family relations. We'll get those on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. I'm Tom Goodall, a member of College Views. A question about what has been said on the virtual Bible study tonight? Perhaps you disagree with something that was said, or would just like more information about what you've heard. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us with any questions or comments that you might have. Email us at questions at collegeview.com, and we can discuss any of your questions or comments with you privately or over email. Or if you would like to speak with someone in person, call us at 931 381 Four five six seven. Our promise to you is that we'll do our very best to give you a Bible answer for anything that we do or teach, and that we will do so in a loving manner. So if you have any questions or comments about our program tonight, or any Bible subject, email us at questions at collegeview.com or call 931-381-4567. Thanks for listening to tonight's virtual Bible study, and we hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. It's easy to think of philanthropy as something done by the very wealthy or big foundations or prosperous companies. Actually, of the $358 billion that Americans gave to charity in 2014, only 14% came from foundation grants and just 5% from corporations. The rest, 81%, came from individuals. And among individual givers in the U.S., the vast predominance of offerings come from average citizens of moderate income. Between 70% and 90% of all U.S. households donate to charity in a given year. And the typical household's annual gifts add up to between two and $3,000. That information is via Philanthropy Roundtable. The Word of God says in 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 17, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. 
broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we're back going to the top of the hour. We've got a couple more questions from our listeners tonight. We may get to, all, to them all. Yeah, I hope we can. Uh, we got one from Billy, and I think this is the first time we've ever heard from Billy. I don't know where Billy is exactly, but Billy, thanks for listening and uh, joining in with the virtual Bible Thank study. Thank you for your question. He says, I have found it increasingly harder to argue against the position that Christ intended his real presence in the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. When dealing with the scripture verses pertaining to it in the synoptic gospels, I have always relied heavily on the English word remembrance. That is until realizing that the word in the original Greek is Anna, uh, I had this right earlier, anam, anamnesis, anamnesis, I believe is the way you say that, uh, uh, which is used elsewhere, always refers to a memorial sacrifice and not merely a symbolic ritual. When comparing these verses with others, like those in John 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, it points more and more towards Jesus intending the eating and drinking of his actual body and blood especially when considering that the disciples left Jesus because of the difficulty of this teaching in John 6, verse 66. Okay. All right. The, the, the thing that, that uh, Billy is suggesting there has a title. The Catholic Church refers to it as transubstantiation. It comes from Latin. Trans means across, substantia, or substance. So the substance, it crosses over. In the Lord's Supper, in Catholic theology, to denote the idea that during the celebrating of the Lord's Supper, they call it Mass, the bread and wine are changed in substance to become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Right. Transubstantiation, that's the idea. The Catholics teach it and believe it. And Billy's saying he's having trouble, more and more trouble arguing against that conclusion. Um, well, uh, couple of things, I guess, that I would use to answer that. Uh, I think it's a failure to denote figurative and literal terminology. And I think this attempt to, to place the real presence of the flesh and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the, the problem is, is that it is a misunderstanding of language, a, a figurative language used in Scripture. Uh, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was using figurative language. I, I was trying to think of some kind of illustration. We do this almost all the time in daily conversation. Jacob, if I said, this is your house, and this is my house, and this is the road that goes between them, yeah. what would you think? Yeah. This, right. did, this didn't literally become my house. That didn't literally become your house. This didn't literally become the road. But I would say, uh, if, if I was trying to draw an analogy, I'd say, this is your house, this is my house, this is the road between. We would understand that. And, and that's the kind of terminology that Jesus was using uh, in, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. All right. Uh, it, it was figurative. And, and uh, Jesus used figurative language a lot. But interestingly, go to Matthew 26 with me, where Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 he said, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, gave, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it for this, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So notice, 
he said, he said, this is, this is my body. This is my blood. But look at the next verse, verse 20. I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. The previous verse, he said, this is my blood. Verse 28 and verse 29, he still referred to it as fruit of the vine. It's clear that the fruit of the vine was symbolically or figuratively representing his blood. Actually, Jesus was still in his flesh and his blood was still coursing through his veins when he said that. Yeah. So and I, I, clearly Jesus was using figurative language. And I think the context of that actually bears out. He said, this is my blood. But in the very next verse, he still referred to it as fruit of the vine. All right. Uh, what do you think? Uh, let us know your thoughts. Um, uh, look at, uh, he references John chapter 6, and where there is some uh, instruction there about Jesus saying, uh, I am live the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, and, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Okay. Now, a couple of things. Yeah. In verse 54, notice the verbs. He that eateth and drinketh. No, see, he that eateth and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. Those are present tense verbs. That suggests that they were already doing that. His, these disciples were already doing that. They were doing it and would continue to eateth. That is, he's doing it now and he continues to do it. The verb tense there in the Greek would suggest present active. He's doing it now. He's going to continue to it. He who keeps eating my flesh. And literally, you could translate that way. He who continues eating my flesh and drinking my blood has eternal life. Yeah. And so they they were not eating his literal flesh and drinking his literal blood. But here, the idea of it, it notice the result of this is going to produce life. Uh, I think this is the the figured and a figurative expression again, denoting incorporating Jesus into your inner being. Look at verse 57. He who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, if that life is, or if that feeding were of the, is, is of the physical the elements, phys, it's his physical body, it's his physical blood, does that life then mean physical life? No, obviously not, because people who partake of the Lord's Supper are dying physically. It's, yeah. it's spiritual. Yeah. Partaking of the spiritual blessings of Christ, his coming to earth, being in the body, and shedding his blood, if we'll partake of the blessings that are associated with that and follow him, then we'll have eternal life. You know, ju- just common sense. If it come, becomes his body and blood, why does it look exactly just like it looked like before? In other words, we brought bread and grape juice for the Lord's Supper. And when we put it in our mouth and when we drank it down, it still looked like bread. And for the, I mean, how it, it obviously hasn't literally changed into f- Human flood, that just from a common sense point of view, that has to be a literal thing. I mean, a, a figurative, not a literal thing. All right. Monty in the chat room says, uh, 
Grape juice is always available. See, uh, oh, there's a, there's some comments that we've, we've skipped. Uh, 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 let's see. Uh, if it were literally Jesus' blood, then M.O. says, if it were literally Jesus' blood, then Jesus sinned by drinking it. Uh, because in Acts 15, 20, Christians were forbidden from drinking blood. Uh, I guess 1684, since wine was mentioned in the program, it seems for the first 1800 years of the church used wine before grape juice was available. Should we be concerned if a church uses wine now even with grape juice? That's another question for another time, but we don't think that the early Christians did use. And it is not a factual statement that their grape juice was unavailable until 200 years ago. We can talk about that another time. Yeah, if you have, if you have comments on that or you want to you want to discuss that, send us a question, uh, email questions at collegeview.com. Emo goes on to say it cannot be literally his blood. It must be... Uh, subliminal or, or figurative or, or symbolic symbolic he means symbolic uh, uh, he also said uh, guess 7658 said he also said to do the will of God is bread then when talking with the women at the well that's that's interesting. to do the will of God is his bread yeah oh that's interesting when the disciples that's a good tie-in when the disciples brought food back to Jesus he said my bread is to do the will of my father okay. that would be a good that's a really good one 7658 to tie into the the figurative use of bread there. All right. Okay, we need to hurry. Uh, Billy, hopefully that helps uh, answer yeah, your question. Yeah, and we'd be glad for any follow-ups. That and uh, we missed one from Keith there, but uh, we need to get on. Uh, to one from Josh quickly. Okay. Uh, do you have Bible, from Josh, it says, do you have Bible evidence or scriptures that would support a Christian family to continue family relations with an agnostic? Uh, yes. So, so this is this is a family situation where we're un- to understand. Here's a family Assuming the family are Christians, they have a family member who is agnostic or not sure if there's a God or not. Okay, so we do have uh, scriptural instructions along these lines. And, well, to answer the question, we have to begin by saying it depends on the relation. What is the relation? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says in verse uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe... And she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So there's an agnostic or even an atheist. And if your family, spouse... Family relations were to continue. If they're willing for them to continue. So that here's the thing. I think in answer to Josh's question, the question would definitely devolve into a determination of how close is this relationship. If my wife becomes an agnostic, I'm still her husband. I still have obligations, obligations that I have to fulfill family-wise with my wife. Even if she denounces the Lord and becomes an atheist, I still am married and I still have uh, husbandly responsibilities to her. But if it's my third cousin twice removed who was a Christian but now he rejects the Lord... I don't really have any family responsibilities to him. And I and I think that the general set forth in the word of God in regards to withdrawing ourselves from those who are unruly, Second uh, Thessalonians 3 and so forth, would certainly apply to him. And so the, the question is a little too general to make a specific answer. I, and, and I think this is going to have to be determined. How close is that relationship and what, obli- what additional family obligations exist between the parties involved? 
Yeah. So if if he's my my wife, if she's my wife, uh, he's uh, your husband. You've got obligations there. If it's your child, maybe you have a child that's a, a minor a, child. A minor child, and you're still obligated for their care and provision. But now let's say it's your 42nd cousin, and your 42nd cousin says that he doesn't believe there's a God, and people who follow God are, are ignorant. Yeah. Then I, you I, don't have to associate yeah. with that 42nd And I, I want to tell you how it is with, in my mind. That, that family obligation thing is pretty narrow. It's definitely going to apply between me and my wife. It would likely apply between me and a minor child, but I, that's as far as I'm going to take that. So I'm, I'm saying there is authority to continue relationship, family relations with someone, but it's a narrow authority. And generally speaking, I think the principles of withdrawing ourselves from those who are unfaithful would apply in almost all circumstances. Guest, see, uh, Mo says if the family member is a fallen away Christian, we would need to withdraw ourselves from them. Mo speaking from personal experience had to do that, and uh, many who uh, may be listening to the program have had to do that. You know, that's interesting because the question says, "Can we maintain family relationship?" Uh, Family relationship uh, is different than spiritual relation. If if my wife became an atheist. I would still not have spiritual fellowship. I would, I, would, I, would, I would not be in spiritual fellowship with her if she's denounced the Lord. But I'd still have family relationship obligations to my wife, even if she became an unbeliever. And what about, what about if this, let's look at this on physical terms here as we're out of time. What if I had a brother who began to mock you, my physical father, and said, ah, that's all, that's all, that's, he's just a, he's a myth. He's a, he's a joke. Nobody would. I mean, he's a, he's a, it's just a sham. Your physical father is just he's a joke. Would I continue to say, "Oh, come on over for Thanksgiving dinner, brother"? Everything's just fine. You're spitting in my father's face, but no problem. Yeah. No, there we draw a hard line if it's your physical father and he's insulting you. But yet, when it's a, our spiritual heavenly father and they spit in our father's face, we say, oh, "Come on over, no problem. Everything's fine. Let's hug and, and everything's yeah. gonna be fine." So the we question, don't, we're not consistent. Yeah. It's just a shame. Yeah. The, the question's a little broad, but our, our, our principal answer is yes, there's authority to maintain some family relationships in very specific cases, very limited. But, but generally speaking, I think the authority of scriptures would be to withdraw ourselves from those who walk disorderly. Okay. And for multiple reasons. For the ones uh, who is walking disorderly's benefit and for those who could be influenced by that person. There's lots of reasons. We've talked about these before, and we're out of time, but hopefully that helps deal yeah, with some wait, of the questions. We actually went quite a bit over, but that's oh, good. Oh, we're over now. Kyle, that. any thoughts from you before we conclude? No, uh, which I would, uh, I guess I would, I was going to make a comment there, but uh, if anybody has questions about uh, grape juice and fermented wine in the church, we have several programs. From 2015, we had like a four-week uh, study there on the, the use of wine and unfermented Was wine that 2014 already? It's been three years ago? Oh, wow. It was 15, yes. 15. 15. 15. 15. Okay. Yeah. Seems like, like it was last year. But yeah, we're open to that again. I mean, if, of course. It, if our listeners have questions about that, let's send them in. Uh, we can deal with it uh, with your emails. Or if you'd like to come on the program, we'll welcome you to come on the program. It's a big, it's a big uh, question in people's minds right now. 
and we'd love to talk about that. So send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. Dad, uh, thank you, Anthony, or uh, Kyle, for being here with us tonight. It's always good to be here. And, uh, Dad, a a good discussion. Hopefully uh, hopefully we'll get some more of these questions. Send more questions. Send more questions. We go three weeks in a row, but the challenge, I mean, it's going to get hard. We've got to see if they can step up again for the third week in a row. Uh, Thanks, Dad, for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being here. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans. We'll be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we your life study has inspired Word of the Bible and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.